Man, I gotta tell you, I'm excited about being back in the book of Acts. I'm excited about this resilient series and I'm excited about our, our bit, will it break, right? Like how many of you, show of hands, quick poll, how many of you thought that it would break? Yes, who thought that it would not break? And you were right, I was wrong twice. I saw it in the first service and I voted that it would break. Second service, I thought my guys were gonna get it done and Stretch Armstrong is two and oh this morning, right? It's incredible how strong Stretch Armstrong is. He's that resilient. And all of that and any of that that we're going to do over the next couple of weeks is all in fun. And it's to get our minds focused on this idea of what it means to be resilient. All of that's fun, but you know what's not fun? Wondering how resilient am I? And we do wonder that, right? Like we see evil in the world. We see suffering. We see pain. We see brokenness around us. We see it in the experiences of other people's lives. And we look at that and we go, man, I see what's going on with them. And I wonder how resilient would I be if my faith was being tested in that way? You've been there, right? You see it in other people's lives and it causes you to wonder, how resilient am I? Let's be honest though, we, we see this in our own lives. We have our own experiences, our own brushes with suffering and struggle and trials and hardships. And we ask questions like, how much more resilient can I be? How much more can I take? You've been there, haven't you? Of course we all have. And I want us to back up just a little bit and, and kind of explore what resilience even is, right? So the dictionary definition becomes somewhat helpful. Resilience is this. It's the, the capacity to withstand or to recover quickly from difficulties, to withstand in the face of difficulties or to recover on the other side of difficulties. It's this unique individual personal capacity, and we all have different capacities for different things. And, and so resilience is this capacity within us. And I want us to build on that dictionary idea of what resilience is, but let's bring it into our context. What is resilient? Faith. What is a faith that, that is resilient in the face of suffering and struggle and evil. I think it's really, really similar. It's a, a capacity to be faithful. It's a capacity be, to be faith-filled in the face of suffering and evil and struggle. It's this capacity in the face of, of difficult things and hardships and tests. It's this capacity for us to, to hold on to our, our beliefs. But even more so than holding on to our beliefs, it's this capacity to continue in our, our practice, right? Even more important, even more of a challenge is to continue to follow, not just to believe these things, but to follow as if we believe these things, to hold on to our, our faith and our practice, believing that, that God is good, even in the face of really, real, bad experiences. That's what resilient faith looks like. And my guess is you've seen this. I know you've seen this. We respect resilient faith when we see it, don't we? I want you to imagine someone in your, in your world, in your life. Maybe you know them well. Maybe you just know of them. But you see that as a picture of resilient faith. That person becomes that picture of you. We respect it. The truth is, man, it inspires us when we see resilient faith. It's inspirational. And I will tell you, so many of you guys have inspired me. I've seen it in so many of you. I've seen so many of you stay and keep going and persevere and persist. Life punches you in the face or maybe in the gut or maybe both. And I see this capacity in you where you come back a little bit tougher, but a whole lot more tender. Right? I've seen this in you where, where you come back and your, your belief is as firm or more firm than ever. But at the same time, you have this, this flexibility with your expectations and the ex things that you expect of God. 
I've seen it in you, and so it causes me to ask, I think it causes you to ask, like, where does this resilience come from? How does it work? How do we get it? I mean, these are all good questions. And fortunately for us, resilience is the story of the book of Acts. This book of the Bible that we're walking through, it's in the New Testament after the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, then John, then Acts. The Gospels tell the, the story of the life, the ministry, the miracles, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Acts picks up right where they leave off. Jesus ascends into heaven where he belongs at the right hand of God the Father. And he commissions his disciples to start this movement, this cause, this mission called the church with all of its local expressions. And I'm going to tell you what, the book of Acts is a story of resilience. Not just the apostles, but the every day disciples that Jesus said, you will be used to build my church and to spread the message of the gospel. And the resilience of those disciples in the book of Acts becomes inspiration for us as modern day disciples. And that's why I'm so excited to get into this part of Acts because it becomes fuel for us, right? Their story fuels our faith today. And so today we pick up right where we left off in Acts chapter 6, right where we left off, right before Christmas time. So turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6, verse 8. Acts 6, 8. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those are the Gospels. Then you have the book of Acts that tells about the origins of the church as the Holy Spirit empowers the disciples to create a Jesus movement. If you don't have a Bible this morning... We'll put the words on the screen, but I'd encourage you to take a free Bible from the Welcome Center. They're free. We'd love to give you one and send you home one with one today. So as you turn, let me recap a little bit and pick up where we left off in Acts chapter 6. We built all the way up from Acts 1 through 6 in the first series. We saw Jesus ascend into heaven. We saw him commission the disciples. He told them they're going to move from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And what we see in Acts chapter 6 as we pick up in verse 8 is we find the church in a really sweet but tenuous spot. The sweet spot is this. It's growing. People, more and more people are coming to faith in Christ. More and more people are choosing to follow Jesus. And so the faith family is growing. The church is growing, but that comes with it. The best kind of problems. There's more people than there is ministers. And so they choose from among them seven people to raise up in leadership and help shoulder the responsibility and the needs of ministry. It's a beautiful moment where we see people step up and step in and own the work of the church. And then among these seven was a particular guy that our attention is drawn to. And I told you as we wrapped up that series that we would begin this series with his story and that you would find it to be powerful and inspirational and motivational. His name is Stephen. Stephen is described by the writer of the book of Acts, Luke, who also wrote the gospel of Luke. Stephen is described by Luke as this, as a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. What a great description. May we be described that way. You're going to see very, very quickly today that Stephen has that kind of faith that amazes us, that it inspires us, that we look at that and we go, what's it made of? I want that. That resilient kind of faith that grows even in the face of an evil that's trying to extinguish it. Acts chapter 6, verse 8. Now Stephen, a man full of grace and power, God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the province of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. 
Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Moses is the hero of the faith. He's a key figure in the Old Testament story of God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and they brought him before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is a council of the elders of Israel, the powerful of the powerful among the Jewish people. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place, meaning the temple of God, and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, the temple, and change the customs of Moses, their hero, handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Guys, I want to summarize for you what you're seeing on this scene in the scriptures this morning. Stephen is a man of great faith, and he's a man empowered with great spirit-empowered works. So you've got faith and works, and his faith and works, the boldness with which he brings both. Man, it creates a stir on the scene. It stirs the crowd. Now, if a Christ follower's goal in life and living is to be like Christ, which it is, then Stephen's doing it. Right? Like as followers of Jesus, that's what we're moving in toward. That, that our, our attitudes, our actions, our behaviors, our mindsets, our affections, all of who we are, all of our devotion would become so much like Christ that we would be like Christ in our compassion and our kindness and our response. And yes, even in sinning less as the Spirit empowers us to be more and more and more like the Jesus that we follow. And when you look at Stephen, man, you see someone who is truly following Jesus. When you see the grace, the power, the the boldness, the message, the miracles, the things that he's doing, he looks a whole lot like Christ in this verse, doesn't he? And so the crowd responds to him in the same way that they responded to Jesus. Jesus would do these things. Jesus would speak with such power and such authority, and then he would demonstrate that authority with power over creation. And as he did, it would often elicit in people fear. They had a fear-filled response. They would see that as something to be feared, but not in a positive way. It caused them to be against Jesus instead of for Jesus and, and with Jesus. And so they see Stephen doing very, very similar things. They see Jesus and Stephen as a dual threat. This Stephen who follows Jesus of Nazareth threatens, just like Jesus did, their power systems, their power structures, their norms, their culture, and their way of life. Yes, he stirred them, but they feared him. And as this pattern goes, the pattern continues to develop in the exact same way that it did with Jesus. The fear led to opposition, the opposition to persecution, and you will see ultimately where the persecution goes. There's so many similarities between Stephen's experience And Jesus' experience, even to the point that false witnesses come against him and say Stephen was saying things that Stephen wasn't saying. And in the face of all of this, what we see is that the presence of God in Stephen caused him to be known as someone who was different. Like in his own physical experience, his own physical presence, they could see a difference because this man was a new creation in Christ and Christ and the Holy Spirit in him made it so evident that he was unique and different and yet they still seized and tried him. And that's where we pick up in Acts 7.1. Then the high priests, this is the guy of guys in Israel, the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? Are these charges against you the truth? 
And what follows in Acts 7, as Stephen responds, man, it is a masterpiece of a message. It is a message that he preached in the face of a very fear-filled and angry Sanhedrin, this group of, of the elders of Israel, these leaders of leaders. He says this with boldness before them. And for the sake of time today, I'm going to give you just a little bit of a summary of what Stephen said in this masterpiece of a message. But I want to encourage you strongly to go home and read Acts 7 for yourself today. Like as we journey through through Acts, journey with us. Like Michelle said earlier, we're moving from 6 to 13 in the series. But today, I want you to read 7 and see what he does. Because what he does for us in Acts 7, it's a model of understanding how the Old Testament and the New Testament fit together. It helps us so much to see what God is doing, what God has been doing from the very beginning. How the salvation work of God has been on the move throughout all of human history and how it culminates in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what God has been up to. And so Stephen shares boldly with this Jewish audience. And he begins with their own father, Father Abraham. And then he moves through the patriarchs of the Jewish faith, ultimately through the prophets and to their kings and into the season of kings where David rose up and was the king that led Israel so well. He was a man known after God's own heart. And then his own son, Solomon, became the king that would follow him. And Stephen points out that Solomon is the one that God chose to build the very temple That's at the center of the conversation where this is taking place today. And so Stephen's moving very well, very clearly through the history of Israel. And all along the way, he's pointing out how God has sovereignly moved through their story, through their history, and he's done it with grace. And he's done it with purpose. How God has consistently met their rebellion and their stubbornness with mercy and with love. And he's saying that to them right to their faces with boldness. He's talking to them. And then ultimately, this is how Stephen's powerful message ends. He says to them, make no mistake. The worship of God is not limited to a sacred place, this temple. The worship of God is to be centered on a sacred person, Jesus the Christ, who you killed a few weeks ago. But he's not still dead. And I want you to hear Stephen's own words this morning because they're so much better than mine. Acts 7, pick up in verse 48. However, the Most High, a reference to God, not to the high priest. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, quoting from the Old Testament of Scripture, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you, mere mortals, what kind of house will you, people that have been created by me, what kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? And in this moment, what you see is that the creator is putting creation in its place. And he's talking about how he authoritatively rules and reigns over all created things. Stephen goes on to say, you stiff-necked people. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. That's a reference to Jesus, the Messiah, or the Christ. And now you, talking to the people in the room that day, now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through the angels have not obeyed it. That's right. You feel it, don't you? The high priest asked Stephen, are these charges against you true? And Stephen looked him square in the eyes and he said, you want the truth? You can't handle the truth. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and you killed him. But he's alive and he's alive again. 
And when Stephen said that, man, he wasn't just acting like Jesus. He was preaching like Jesus. He was challenging their norms, their systems, their way of life, just like Jesus did. And they responded to Stephen the same way they responded to Christ. Literally the same way. Acts 7, 54. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the very right hand of God. What a gift that Stephen has given in this moment. And look, he said to them, I have seen heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And at this, they covered their ears and they yelled at him at the top of their voices and they rushed at him. And I want you to see in this moment and picture in your mind a scene of chaos. It devolves into chaos in this moment. And they dragged him out of the city and they began to stone him, throwing rocks at him for the purpose of killing him. And meanwhile, the witnesses of all of this laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Where have you heard that kind of mercy? In Christ, right? And when he said this, he fell asleep and ultimately in death. And guys, there is so much for us to say here, to see here, to talk about here. Like in Stephen, what we have is the very first Christian martyr. You want to talk about a resilient faith? It doesn't get more resilient than that, right? He is a hero of the faith. He was brutally killed because of his faith. He wouldn't back down. He wouldn't walk away. He wouldn't deny the name of Christ. He's this powerful picture of resilience to the very end. And Stephen finds a very untimely end because of his faith in Christ. And so for us, he's this example of resilience. And we got to dig deeper and we got to go, man, what is it that emboldened that kind of faith in him? Because we want that, don't you? We need that. Listen to me. It's really, really much more simple than we make it. What emboldened that kind of faith in Stephen? God was with him. That's where his confidence is. God was with him. And that causes me and you to ask ourselves, like, what would I do if I was that confident that God was with me? Like, what would you do? What would you, what would you believe? What would you, how would you behave? What would you become if you had that kind of confidence that God is with you? What would that lead to in your life? Because ultimately, guys, that reality changes everything. The presence and the power of the Holy Spirit of God within us is a game changer, should be a game changer. Where does our resilience come from? The promise and the power and the presence of God in us. That's what causes him to live bold, to withstand, to be faithful, even more powerful, y'all. That's what causes him in the face of death to be merciful, to be merciful. The gospel and the spirit is what gives him courage in the face of death. And I want that. Do you want that? Then we got to keep going. Where do we get that? What's the recipe? Where does it come from? Acts 8.1. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, as they should. But Saul began to destroy the church, 
Saul began to destroy the church of Jesus. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women out of their homes and put them in prison. And in these three verses, Acts 8, 1, 2, and 3, you see a picture of everything that is coming up in this series as we work through from 6 to 13. This is a foretelling of all that we're about to see. This is the future of the book of Acts. And as we see this great persecution rising up against the church, as we see men and women being arrested, pulled out of their homes, what we will continue to see is that these three verses show us the very righteous hand of God in the face of unthinkable evil, right? The goodness of God, right in the face of unthinkable Thinkable evil. And so these three verses begin to help me and you as we begin to understand what is resilient faith? Like, why? Why would they be imprisoned? Why would they see their brother be killed? Why would they be treated and persecuted like this and still press on in the faith? What's going on in their hearts and minds? And to understand Acts 8 1, you really have to understand Acts 1 8. All right, to understand 8.1, you have to understand 1.8. This goes back to our previous series. This was the theme verse of that series called Then and Now. Acts 1.8, you have right after Jesus' death and resurrection, you have Jesus commissioning the disciples, and then you have what's called the ascension of Christ, where Jesus bodily raises up to be in heaven at the right hand of God the Father, where he absolutely belongs. And before he goes up in his ascension, Acts 1.8, Jesus said this, But you, my disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you, my disciples, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is the voice of Jesus preparing, empowering, and commissioning his disciples. And what Jesus declares in Acts 1.8 is this, the church will spread. The gospel will go forward. It will move out of Jerusalem into the neighboring area and ultimately to the very ends of the earth. Jerusalem, Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's what Jesus promises in Acts 1.8. And then in Acts 8.1, what do we see after the martyrdom of Stephen? We see the promise already coming to be. The gospel is moving out of Jerusalem that day. On that day, great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout where? Judea and Samaria. Acts 1-8 is being realized already in Acts 8-1. And we stand on their shoulders today at the ends of the earth. Because the promise of Jesus is true. And friends, I will tell you, when you look at Acts 1-8 and Acts 8-1 together, this becomes one of the clearest pictures of the sovereignty of God that I know of. One of the clearest in all of Scripture. And there are layers upon layers upon layers of lessons for us to learn about God's sovereign control as we begin to understand this. It will encourage us, but let's be honest, it will also challenge us. Like as we consider the sovereignty of God, it's challenging and it gives us questions for our questions. But this is an undeniable illustration of the good purposes of a good God coming to be. Just like he promised. At least in part because of horrible evil. It's the goodness of God and horrible unthinkable evil. It's the good purposes of God in the face of horrible, unthinkable evil. That's what we have to consider as we consider how God's sovereignty works. And I want you to think about this. That's like the $5 theological word, the sovereignty of God. What is that about? What is sovereignty? Man, this is all about God's authority, his control, and his presence, his authoritative presence over all creation as the creator over the creation. This is about the rule and reign of God for all times. That's what the sovereignty of God is all about. And so... We look at Acts 6, 7, and 8. 
We look at the stoning murder of Stephen. We look at the subsequent scattering of the church. We look at the spreading of the good news of the gospel. And we ask ourselves, which parts of that is God sovereignly in control of? Right? Which part of this is God reigning over? Is he reigning over the scene when his own faith-filled disciple is taken out into the streets and stoned to death? Is God reigning over the scene when his people, the church, are being pulled out of their homes? And if they're not arrested, they're scattering to go somewhere just for the purpose of being able to continue on? Is God reigning in that space? Or is God just simply only reigning over the part where the gospel spreads? Which parts is God sovereign over? All of it. You're absolutely right. All of it. And no, I don't believe he caused it all. But you better believe I believe he allowed it all. And there's a critical difference between the two. And all of this, guys, all of this gets at the age-old question. It's one of the hardest and deepest questions in the matters of faith and religion. Hopefully you've asked this question. If you haven't, you need to. Here it is. If God exists, why then is there evil and suffering? If you've not gotten into the space of spiritual maturity that you've explored the depth of that question, you're past due. If God exists, why then is there evil and suffering? It's one of the age-old questions. It's some of the deepest waters, y'all. And I will tell you, Pastor Andy Stanley out in Georgia, he does such a good job of dealing with this question that I'm simply going to just completely 100% borrow his words today. If God exists, why then is there evil and suffering? And this is what Stanley says. All suffering proves is that a God who doesn't allow suffering doesn't exist. Does that make sense? The existence of suffering proves that a God who doesn't allow suffering doesn't exist. And guys, the truth is genuine Christians, real Bible-believing followers of Christ, have never believed and never preached that God. We've never believed in a God that doesn't allow pain and suffering. That's ridiculous. The idea of a life free from suffering, a life immune from the existence of evil, man, all of that is a false gospel. It's not true. Don't buy into it. Don't believe in it. Instead, think about the true gospel. The the very core and foundation of our faith tells us this. We believe deeply that a God allowed the worst possible thing to happen to the best possible person. And that's our source of hope, right? That's the gospel. God allowed the worst possible thing to happen to the best possible person. When you see Christ on the cross, Jesus crucified, y'all, there is no greater evil that the world has ever experienced than the crucifixion of Christ. And in that is our hope, is our promise, is our future. That's the God we believe in. That's the God we preach. Jesus Christ crucified. So when you look at Acts 8, it begins to come together for us. Like Stephen is literally just following the way of the master. He's just following in the footsteps of Jesus. Will we? Will you? Will I? Will we resiliently follow Christ? Maybe you look at Stephen and you go, you know what? Please don't compare me to him, Randy. The first Christian martyr. This is some kind of super spiritual super saint. I am not cut from the same mold as that guy. So no, I'm not like him. Why would I be? Well, Fair enough, but I would also tell you that he was empowered and emboldened by the exact same Holy Spirit of God that that you are. It's the power of the presence of the Spirit. It's not the power of the person. It's the work of God in us and through us, but still fair enough. Okay, Stephen may be a little bit unique, but I want you to look closer in Acts chapter 8. Because what you see when you really look deeply at the layers and layers and layers of the sovereignty of God in Acts 8 is this. There are tons and tons of ordinary, everyday followers of Jesus following 
Jesus. On that day, great persecution rose out against who? The church. A people, not a building, not like the temple, not like these four walls. No, a people. The persecution rose up against the people. And they scattered. They moved from Jerusalem into Judea and to Samaria. They didn't run from Jesus, man. They ran with Jesus. They didn't scatter to abandon the name of Christ. They scattered to take the name of Christ with them. These disciples were so devoted, so, so faith forged in the face of evil, in the face of fire, that they were resilient. They went because they were confident that God would go with them. He didn't only live in Jerusalem. He didn't only live in the temple. He dwelt in their hearts. And that's what emboldened them. That's what brought about the resilience. These everyday, ordinary followers of Jesus believed that God was with them. And that was enough. And that is enough. That's what emboldens us. That's the ingredient. But there's so many layers to the sovereignty of God in this that, that I have to point out just one more. And I'm going to do it quickly. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. One more layer. 8.1 and 8.3 says this, and Saul, and Saul approved of their killing of Stephen. And Saul began to destroy the church. And I don't know if you don't know who this Saul is, but you need to know who Saul is. As we journey to, uh, through Acts together in this series, you're going to hear much of this man, Saul. So at the risk of spoiling it, let me go ahead and tell you who Saul is. He is also the Apostle Paul. And on the scene in Acts 7 and 8, Saul is a terrorist. He's an absolute terrorist. But the Apostle Paul, this real person, this person who was radically, permanently transformed by an experience with the resurrected Jesus Christ, this terrorist is turned from a terrorist into a church uh, planter, a missionary, a pastor, evangelist, a scripture writer. He goes from church destroyer to church builder, and the Lord used him to change the world. After coming to Christ, he himself would be so well acquainted with suffering. He goes from initiating suffering to enduring suffering. He knew deep and real struggles because of the presence of the Spirit in his life and the cause of Christ and the call of Christ on him. He knew struggles so much so that he even knew the threat of death. There are so many times where the Apostle Paul escapes death as he's being persecuted for his ministry and the following of Christ. He ultimately will die for his faith after escaping death so many, many times. But that causes us to ask, man, why did Paul, this terrorist, escape death so many times when Stephen, this martyr, did not? Why, God? Why is that how it played out? Man, I don't know. But I know this. God was sovereign over all of it. His power, his promise, his presence. It's the recipe for resilience. What I know this is that Saul and Stephen have something in common as followers of Christ. They both believe that God is authoritatively in control and he's simultaneously uncomprehendably good. And the holding of both of those made them resilient to their own unique ends. And their ends looked very different. But in the end, both of these disciples were resilient because of the presence of God and that Jesus is enough. So will we be resilient? Let me tell you guys, understanding the sovereignty of God, it's not easy. I don't understand it, actually. I understand some of it. But the truth is, there's more that I don't know than what I do know. Believing in the sovereignty of God, which I do, it's not easy either. 
And the truth is, believing in the sovereignty of God, that doesn't even answer all of our our questions. It adds questions to our questions. And if we're really, really honest this morning, believing in the sovereignty of God doesn't even always settle our souls. Right? But man, I know this. A deep-seated belief in the sovereignty and the goodness of God, it will enable resilience in us, that we will be found full of faith and faithful to the end. Church, there's more that I don't know than I do know, but I know this. I will follow a God. I will follow a God who allowed the worst possible thing to happen to the best possible person. Himself. When you see Christ on the cross... I want you to understand that the cross is the intersection of sovereignty and love. It's where God's divine control and God's heart of absolute grace and mercy meet. I don't understand everything that there is to understand about the coexistence of a good and loving God and gut-wrenching evil, but I understand this, that Christ on the cross is enough for me. It emboldens us. I don't know why God allows some of it. I don't know why God allows much of it. I can't always answer the why question for you. But man, I can answer the where question. Where is he? He's on the cross. Where is he now? He's resurrected. He's alive and living forever at the right hand of God the Father. Where will he be? He will come back for us. He is so with us and he is so for us that that helps us to do and to deal with when we cannot answer the wise because we know exactly where he is. He's the God of the empty tomb. First Peter 2, 23. When they hurled their insults at Jesus, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in the body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. And so today, together, we celebrate Christ crucified, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. And as we gather around the Lord's Supper, as we gather around the table today, as we gather in worship today, here is my deep prayer that this, this proclamation, this declaration of faith, this remembrance of Christ crucified, that that gospel of good news would be what brings about a deep devotion and a strong resilience in your heart as you face whatever it is that you're facing today. No, maybe your suffering won't create a church planting movement, but I promise you this church, there's purpose in it. And even more important, the presence of God is with you. And so as the servers serve and as the band leads, I'm going to encourage you, if you're a follower of Christ, take and eat, take and drink. Do this in worship. Do this in remembrance. Do this as a declaration of faith. You do this on your own as you pray. Pray with someone you came with. And you do, asking the Lord to make you resilient as your feet are firmly planted on the gospel of Christ. Let me pray for us. God, I pray that you would work a work of resilience in our heart. God, that we would be found faithful and faith-filled. We believe that you are so faithful and trustworthy. May your presence, your power, your spirit embolden us to live and to love like Christ. We proclaim the truth that the Son of God was crucified 
that he lost his life so that we could find ours, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And in this life, we will follow him with faith and boldness. God, do that work in our hearts. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.